It's time for episode 502 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. Clockwise, four people, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the tech podcast that's got plenty of time. Well, as, as long as it's 30 minutes or less, anyway. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent, and I am joined across the internet by my good pal, my dungeon buddy, because we play Dungeons & Dragons online from time to time. It's Dan Morin. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing well, Micah. I just ordered a pizza. We'll see if it makes it here before the end of the show, or else it's free. Free! <laughs> I hope you put several uh, banana peels and glue traps uh, all the way that's, leading up to the door. That's right. It's been a very involved morning around these parts. <laughs> mousetrap um while you take care of uh, setting up a way to get a free pizza i am going to introduce the guest to my left is the producer and reporter at the texas standard as well as the host of parallel right here on relay fm it's shelly brisbane hi shelly hi micah i'm now the producer reporter at texas standard don't tell any of my colleagues who have the same title because <laughs> i'm more important than they are uh, hey that's what i'm saying <laughs> And to my left, it is video and podcast creator, and I believe marking his first appearance on Clockwise, it's Stephen Robles. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It is my first appearance. It's a delight to have you. You know, we've got 30 minutes and four topics. Mine for you is this. Apple is bringing Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro to the iPad. My question is, thinking about the way that you interact sort of at a precise scale, whatever you're using uh, these tools, what are your thoughts about completing precision tasks on the iPad? Shelley, we'll start with you. Well, short and sweet, it's not going to work for me. Uh, I love the iPad primarily because the flexibility it affords me to put the screen anywhere I want it to be. But I'm a person with a visual impairment, and using a touchscreen for precision work is probably not going to work. Will I try it? Of course I will. But I think I'm going to be far better served by a computer where I'm used to a mouse and a keyboard. Obviously, I have keyboard access on the iPad, but I don't feel like the touch interface itself is going to be helpful to me. As I say, I do love the idea that I can put the screen wherever I need it to be without being physically connected to other things. And that's why I'll use the iPad. But I, I unfortunately, I don't think uh, Final Cut and uh, Logic are going to be for me specifically. Uh, Logic I use very regularly on the Mac. I'm intrigued to see how it makes the transition to the iPad because, I mean, to Shelley's point, the iPad is extremely versatile. But I think one of the things that I'm very used to doing in Logic is being able to uh, you know, use my hands on a keyboard or a trackpad while looking at the screen. And I'm curious to know if the direct interaction with the stuff is going to allow me with the same degree of precision, or will I have to be using it in like a magic keyboard with a trackpad? And how would it work if I have it connected to an external monitor? And I, I just don't know. Like, I, I'm fascinated by it, and I'm glad that Apple's making the investment, but I can't really see it necessarily changing my workflow because I don't know why I would opt to do something on my iPad instead of on, you know, my my Mac with a big display unless I was traveling, for example. But it's nice to know that if I am traveling, it's a lot easier for me to do some of the workflows that I potentially in the past would have had to bring a Mac for. So yeah, I, I'm intrigued. I'm definitely going to try out Logic Pro when it comes out and try to edit a few podcasts on it, see how it goes. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still a little hesitant to say I'm all in on this. Stephen, what about you? 
I'm pretty excited because I edit three to four podcasts a week, and I prefer to do it on my iPad and Ferrite with the Apple Pencil as opposed to any other application on the Mac. So I'm very interested to see how the Apple Pencil will interact with Final Cut. A couple unknowns. I'm a little concerned. Apple didn't mention anything like external SSDs or being able to work off footage from an external drive, and that would kind of be a big deal for me. I don't want to be moving footage between drives and my iPad and then back again all the time. But I'm very curious. I am concerned also about shortcuts and hotkeys when I use Final Cut. I have a lot of keyboard shortcuts. I just probably do muscle memory. I don't even think about it. So that might actually slow me down enough where it's not worth it. But I will say when traveling, the only reason I ever brought my MacBook Pro was for video editing. And if it's good enough, then I'm going to leave my MacBook Pro home from now on. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. So yeah, for me, um, I watched the video of the using Final Cut Pro on the iPad uh, from the, the Apple press release. And I thought, ah, because the person's holding up their hand and tapping. And that is why I always go to my Mac is because I can precisely click and move things just very slightly. And, I, you know, even using Photoshop, uh, one would think that it would be a superior experience using the Apple Pencil. But for me, I just find I am more precise with a mouse and a keyboard. Uh, and and so it's, it's possible with the trackpad ability of uh, an iPad that's connected to one of those keyboards to, to get what I want. But then I think to myself, is this for me better than just sitting in front of my Mac and doing it? Uh, so it's really interesting to hear everybody's thoughts on that. And I know of, yeah, quite a few people in our little neck of the internet woods that uh, very happily edit audio on an iPad. So I'm excited for the folks who will be using these tools regularly. Uh, let us move on to our next topic, which comes from Shelley. Wendy's and Google have announced a partnership whereby Wendy's will use Google Generative AI in drive throughs in a couple of test locations to streamline ordering and, frankly, to upsell customers. And I'm interested in what you might think of Generative AI in the retail transaction experience, but based on a recent experience that I had that I'll talk about in a little bit, I'm interested in what you think about automated touchscreen-based ordering in the food industry generally. Uh, AI in the retail experience is an interesting one, though. In some cases, I feel like it's combining rather than combining something I like. This at least combines two things that I'm deeply suspicious of retail and AI. So I feel like it's not so much a choice of getting chocolate in your peanut butter as getting like anchovies in your peanut butter. I don't really know. I don't like peanut butter, but I feel like at least in some place where I know I'm being uh, marketed to already using AI as part of that is just sort of doubling down on the idea that I'm already like, I'm, I know that I'm walking into the store and somebody's going to try to sell me something. So I'm okay with that. But I am curious to see a how transparent they are about whether they're using it and be exactly what it's used for. In terms of the automating food purchasing to touchscreen stuff, I love being able to walk into a store and like a like a food uh, establishment and just hit a touchscreen and and tell me my thing and the thing comes out and I just person to person interaction sometimes at food stores I just get very frustrated and as somebody who can on occasion be a very selective about what he wants to eat I love anything that lets me like very clearly say I don't want this 
but I do want this uh, and I want it prepared in this way because I always feel super awkward when it's mm-hmm. just like I have to go up to the front and tell somebody like, okay, can you hold this part and then can you add this or whatever because I feel like I'm being an imposition even though I'm giving you money to make like give me this food the way I want it. Um, so I always enjoy that part of it because like when the pandemic is, you know, got so many restaurants to do takeout and a lot of them had to, you know, spin up websites to do that and they started offering those options, it just made my life so much like reduced friction so much in that part of my life and i super appreciate that so i'm a big fan of the the touchscreen ordering interface and automation steven what about you so as long as it's good and you know if it was like chat gpt running a drive-thru from my experience in central florida fast food drive-thrus i think chat gpt would do a way better job <laughs> of understanding what i'm trying to say and interpreting it so i think we're good I, i'm totally for it and i'm just glad if it would be a hundred percent like we're not trying to fake it like this is just ai because i've been through a couple drive-thrus i think it was a popeyes where there's like an automated message that comes up the moment you pull up so it makes it feel like someone's helping you right away but it's a hundred percent pre-recorded and then a moment later an extremely gruff voice unlike like the one you just heard is like, yeah, what do you want? You know, so I'm like, just go all in. I'm, I'm down for AI in the drive through. I worry about that sort of upsell mechanism that's built that, the, you know, they're talking about being built into this and how much time that would potentially take, because I feel it might be a little bit easier uh, with a human being to say, no, 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 I'm really not interested in that. Let's just have, I just want this um, versus this virtual machine where it's like, are you sure you don't want that? Hmm? Um, so we'll have to see how that works in in practice. But outside of that, yes, I do think overall, uh, this is not a terrible thing, particularly as you all are mentioning with the sort of tapping on a screen aspect and just uh, being being able to be precise like we were talking about last uh, topic. Um, all right, Shelly, why don't you round us out here? This was occasioned by an experience I had the other day. There's a grocery store near my house that has some food stalls, which is a great thing. And I've been to that store many times and I enjoy it. But when I went there the other day, I was presented with kiosks and you order at the kiosks for all of the food stalls. And the people who are working behind the counter to prepare meals don't even pay attention to you because it's all ordered by by kiosk. Uh, the other problem, the problem with the kiosk, however, is that it is inaccessible to somebody who is blind or has a visual impairment. In my case, I could see the screen, but because I didn't have the ability to create a dark mode situation for myself, it was almost impossible to use, or I could do it with great difficulty. And I opted to just leave. And I've seen this in, in airport food ca- halls. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it in a variety of places. And the problem with technology uh, invading in this way is that accessibility is both the opportunity that the technology provides and the biggest limitation because I've been completely shut out. But at the same time, I agree with Dan that having a machine where I can say, yes, I'd like you to, yes, pickles, no lettuce, no mayo, yes, mustard, whatever my preference is, I can verify that my, it's like when you go at the voting booth and you can look at your ballot before you press the button, you know, those are good things. But if that's not accessible to me and if that's not universally accessible and if that's not something that the uh, vendors think about this before they install kiosks and before they create a situation where there's nobody there who is the backup that could assist you, that's that's bad. That's mm-hmm. very bad. And so it, especially in this day when we talk more about accessibility and technology than we ever have and where the kiosk I used the other day was literally an iPad, but the accessibility features aren't available to me because it's got a front end that is customized for that store's use, then what's the point of having an accessible device? 
Let us take a quick break because we have reached halftime, and then we'll be back with even more of the show. I want to tell you about ZocDoc, who are bringing you this episode of Clockwise. So maybe you're trying to find a cause for your symptoms, and you stumble down a TikTok or Google rabbit hole, and now you find yourself worried more than ever before. Honestly, there are better ways to get the answers you're looking for and the care you deserve from trusted professionals, not random people on the internet. ZocDoc is going to help you find the expert doctors, those medical professionals that actually specialize in the care you need and deliver the type of experience you want. So ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, who take your insurance who are available when you need them, and who treat almost every condition under the sun. There's no more playing this doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you've got a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor that you just haven't met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and their schedule just right. So, you're looking for a doctor, if you're looking for a medical professional, go to ZocDoc.com slash clockwise, download the ZocDoc app for free, then find and book a top rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash clockwise, ZocDoc.com slash clockwise. Use that URL to get the app. And our thanks to ZocDoc for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, we are back from the break, and that means it's time for Dan's topic. Google is uh, imminently entering the foldable foldable phone. Boy, that's going to be fun (laughs) to say. Market. And I want to know if having, you know, somebody like Google, who's not only a, you know, maker of hardware, asterisk, but also a platform, um, you know, sort of uh, controller, uh, having them sort of embrace these foldable phone concepts, do you think this is going to be what helps sort of catapult this into the mainstream? Or is this just another sort of uh, uh, technological cul-de-sac? Stephen, we'll start with you. I think I have seen two foldable phones in the wild ever. And if Google has any track record with hardware, which is to say not a good one, you know, their (laughs) hardware does not sell. It's just not any of the most popular Android hardware devices. So them entering the market, I don't think will affect the market at large when it comes to foldable phones. I really don't think foldable phones have a solid future. You know, I think this is a 3D TV era kind of gimmick, I'll say. Maybe not a gimmick. I know there's some people who love it. But, you know, look at the iPhone 14 Plus, you know, the non-pro version. It seems like that is not selling as well as the iPhone 14. And so a larger screen may not be a selling feature just on normal phones. And so having to open the thing up and it has the crease in the middle, I don't know, even as the technology gets better, I don't see people going back to foldable phones like it used to be. That yeah, that that's exactly how I feel. I don't. I Google doing this isn't going to change things. I feel because the company is not a hardware first company, and so it's almost secondary to Samsung having gotten into the market before this. Samsung was the company that could potentially change things. They have not really. And so I don't think that it's uh, mainstream as of yet. The the only possibility is seeing performance improvements to Android when Google has its own internal hardware uh, to sort of test what Android is like on a foldable. So in that way, I think it can make it better for people with foldables. But I don't think Google's entry 
means much of anything personally. Shelley, what are your thoughts? I agree on the software side that it has potential benefits for Android and for others who might develop foldable phones and, frankly, for just the market in general to have to pay a little bit more attention to the concept of foldables because Google is doing it, not because they're a preeminent hardware vendor, but because they make the Android software. It's not a one-to-one relationship in terms of the hardware. There's not going to be a foldable iPhone because they're competing with a Pixel. Uh, But I do feel like it is kind of Google saying, well, we're going to at least give it a vote of confidence as something that could potentially impact the market. I don't think it's ever going to be a market leading thing. I think that the potential of foldable on the software side, it might be interesting, and I haven't actually used a foldable phone, so I don't know how far they've gotten down this road. But I think the interesting part is how you design the interface of a foldable phone so that how you the, the flexibility in the way that you interact with your phone and the way that you hold the phone and whether it's folded and the like uh, gives you some additional functionality. And that didn't, I don't think that's quite there yet, but that that's the potential. It's all on the software side. And I guess Google feels like if they make the hardware, then there's going to be more of a, you know, give and take between the hardware and the software side. But it, as I say, I don't, I don't think people are going to go out and buy pixels uh, just because they're foldable. It's not going to make them a market leader. Yeah, I think I'm pretty much aligned with the rest of you on this. I do think Google embracing it is significant because of its position in the industry and not just because of its hardware. I think the Pixel is often seen as a flagship phone, even if it's not a phone that most people buy, because it is the phone that Google can sort of put all of its oomph behind and say, like, you know, this is this is design. We're doing the hardware. We're doing the software. Like, this is sort of our vision of what Android is. And so having a foldable phone amongst its, you know, uh, lineup, means that it's something where is sort of viewing it as on par with the other phones that it's selling, the other form factors that it's selling. In terms of its long-term, you know, direct impact on the market, I don't think necessarily this model as per se will have an effect. I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether it's something that sticks around or ends up being a one-off. You know, obviously Google releases a new Pixel every year or two. Um, If it continues to release folding models and those folding models get better and better, that's significant, especially if it's adding more and more software features to accommodate them. But if it turns out next year rolls around and they're like, yeah, that old Pixel Fold's still great. Just stick with that one. I'm definitely going to be a little less optimistic about its future. I do think the foldable market will go somewhere eventually. It's just a very slow climb because the technology needs to improve much more before we're at the point where people are ready to use that for their everyday things. One interesting side note that I think might be interesting here is foldables gives Google an entry into a market it didn't really have before, which is to say... Google Android tablets have been kind of terrible (laughs) overall. And I'm curious to know if having this foldable phone form factor, oh my God, foldable phone form factor. I said it right, (laughs) but I really didn't think I was going to. Um, It gives them a little bit more, uh, you know, experience working with larger screen sizes and different form factors. So I think that's an interesting idea because they've kind of seeded the tablet market to the iPad. And I'm curious to know if they feel like this is a place they can kind of get in uh, and wedge themselves in before, like, without having to com- fully commit to, like, hey, we need to improve our tablet interface. But thank you all for your thoughts on that. Very interesting topic. We'll see what becomes of it. Um, we have one final topic, which comes from Stephen. AI at WWDC. Every company is talking about AI integrating it. Google Bard, Microsoft with Bing, and Apple has a product, Siri, that is ripe to be built with AI features. Do we think that Apple will say the words AI or artificial intelligence in any way at this WWDC or in the future? 
I do think we will hear Apple talk uh, about AI. I think they'll be very careful to not make it their own, um, as they've done in the past. They've uh, sort of tried to focus on specific types of artificial intelligence, like computer vision and machine learning. Um, But I do think we're going to see some talk of this. I don't know if it's going to be at this next WWDC, depending on how much of the, the conversation is surrounding its new reality OS and all of that jazz. But it would be super cool to see a version of Siri built on generative AI technology versus whatever it is using right now. That said, um, I think I saw a quote about uh, from Tim Cook, or maybe it was from another uh, higher up discussing the fact that they, you know, they're aware of it, but they want to take it slow and get it right. So yeah, with that in mind, I don't think, I don't know if we're going to see it this soon but certainly in the future. Shelley, what are your thoughts? As we know, Apple is very wordsmithy about words that it did not create or terms that it does not use. It it doesn't like to be in a position where everybody's been talking about AI, so we need to do that too. So I think Apple will actually avoid the words AI. Perhaps artificial and intelligence will be used, but perhaps not together. There will be a lot of sort of cutting and pasting and and we'll all be, wait, wait, are they talking about AI? I, I don't know. I think they are. Yeah. And I, I can't ima- I don't imagine that they will because in order to, to talk about Siri, they want to talk about new features of Siri. They don't want to say, well, we're going to fix it because Siri is bad and you know, they're never going to say that. So in other words, I, I guess my short answer is I think once we reflect on what we learn about at WWDC, we're going to realize that AI has infected that DNA, but that it's not going to be direct. I think over time, there are going to be announcements that address AI, whether it be through Siri or whether it be through app support of AI. That stuff's going to happen. Apple obviously wants to develop that kind of stuff itself. And if it can't, it's going to do so in such a way that it doesn't give the impression that it's piggybacking on things that people like Google and Microsoft are already doing. Yeah, I mean, not to split semantic hairs, but obviously Apple does spend a lot of time working with machine learning, uh, which is, you know, obviously a (laughs) kind of synonymous term with what this artificial intelligence really is. And so I think it has been very careful to steer away from that buzzword aspect. Tim Cook did say recently on the Apple financial call that, you know, Apple obviously puts uh, AI in a lot of the stuff that it does, things like crash detection and fall detection, uh, all the photos stuff, right? Like lifting um, subjects out of photos. All of those features are heavily machine learning based. They're just not using AI in the sense of, you know, a chatbot that you can talk to. So I think Apple is probably going to talk about how much machine learning it uses. Um, and it may even mention that as a subset of AI, but I don't think that it's in a hurry to discuss sort of the chat GPT style uh, investment in you know Siri or what have you. I, I think that there's a lot of problems, as Tim Cook himself said, that need to get ironed out before uh, something like that is going to happen. And I have no illusions that I, I'm, I feel that pretty confident that they are investigating those opportunities, if not actively developing them, to try and figure out how can we bring some of the benefits of ChatGPT and those styles of large language models to interactions with Siri without losing 
what makes Siri um, work, which is its inability to come up with any answers and hear you at all. T- no, wait, it's with <laughs> the stuff that Siri is supposed to be designed for, which is finding answers to questions. You don't want Siri to make up answers to your questions. Right. It sometimes kind of does that already. So yeah, I think I think we'll hear about machine learning at WWDC, but I think they will probably steer clear of acknowledging how all the AI is getting developed everywhere else. Because you know, like Shelly said, they don't want to define themselves by what their competitors are doing. Stephen, why don't you wrap this up for us? I think Apple is going to do Cirque du Soleil style verbal gymnastics to avoid saying AI at this year's <laughs> WWDC. And I think it's hilarious on the Final Cut Pro for iPad landing page. There's a feature called Auto Crop, which any other company would say we use AI to automatically crop your video for vertical clips. And instead, Apple says we intelligently adjust, <laughs> which is basically just AI in a different order. And so they're going to like you said, say machine learning a hundred times to basically mean this. But all that to say, I'm sure you guys have heard and seen Federico Vitici's SGPT shortcut that integrates the ChatGPT API. And I just have to say, I've integrated that into my podcast workflow shortcuts. And just to paint a picture, I have a link for, let's say, the Apple Insider podcast, all the links of the headlines. I'm going to make those into show notes. I have a shortcut that formats those into HTML, pulls in the social media handles for me and my co-hosts, and then it actually runs all the headlines for those articles through ChatGPT via the API and auto-generates a podcast episode title that's SEO optimized and a podcast description for me, puts it all on my clipboard, and now I have my entire podcast show notes title and description already ready. And I can adjust it if I want. And it is an amazing shortcut. And again, I see a world where Apple integrates that kind of generative technology just right in shortcuts. So rather than me having to call the ChatGPT API, let me just call the shortcut generative language ML, whatever language they want to use. (laughs) But I could also see Apple adding this to things like pages, where as you're writing notes, pages can suggest text. Or if you have bullet points and images, you can tell Keynote to generate slides based Mm. on those images and bullet points rather than you have to manually do all of that. Or in numbers to be able to generate charts from your data without you having to do all the steps of it yourself. And so I see so much potential for Apple to add this. I don't think they're going to call it AI, but I hope that in the next year, I don't know if we'll see it at this WWDC, but the next few years, uh, also in development, Xcode would be a huge place where AI tools could be really helpful for developers. I really hope they integrate this stuff in the future. This episode of Clockwise is brought to you by Shirts. Specifically, <laughs> Clockwise shirts. You can find them at clockwise.social slash shirt, as you might imagine. Uh, we have a beautifully designed uh, Clockwise tee available there. It's uh, a, a Cotton Bureau tee. comes in many colors. Check it out and consider picking one up. Very exciting. Uh, definitely get your Clockwise merch and, uh, you know, let, let us see your photos. Clockwise.social slash shirt. All right, back from that break. And now it's time for my bonus topic. My question for you in the middle of May. Uh, did you celebrate Halloween as a kid? And if so, what was your favorite costume that you can remember? Shelly, we'll start with you. I did trick-or-treat as a kid in the traditional Halloween uh, way of celebrating, and I don't have much memory of the costumes I wore, with one exception. Uh, one year, we were scrambling for a costume, and Mom said, why don't you go, and this is the, the wording she used at the time, why don't you go as a hobo? Which meant, let's just find a bunch of old clothes and put them on you. She rigged up some suspenders from pieces of fabric, and I found some old hat or whatever. And so the pictures of me, I, I, I'm trying to look kind of cool, but basically I'm a kid hobo. 
I, my mom was absolutely amazing at creating costumes and I dread the day when I'll need to like make them for my kid because I'm terrible <laughs> at this kind of thing. But if I had to pick one, uh, I definitely went one year, probably towards the end of elementary school, uh, maybe even junior high school as, uh, as Riker from the next generation. So my mom made the uniform <laughs> shirt. I had a little pin and I think they, he like, she like face painted a beard <laughs> onto me somewhere. There's probably a picture of that, but uh, it's probably best left off the internet. <laughs> Stephen, what about you? So I grew up in a very conservative home. So we had the harvest parties, uh, that was <laughs> typically the same day as Halloween and involved candy and dressing up. And so I did dress up and one year I didn't have a costume but I had a suit. And so I wore a black suit and I called myself 007, which you would have no idea. I was just in a black suit. But my dad printed up these little business cards that had the 007 and the little like gun logo on it. So I just walked around this harvest party, pulling out business cards, telling people I was 007. <laughs> That's amazing. Nice. Uh, for me, it was my pirate costume that I had as a kid. And the reason why is because I remember there being these really, for me, it was so amazing seeing how visual sort of makeup could make a difference. Uh, the little sponge that came in the, in the, uh, the kit that you would uh, apply black paint to your face, but it did so in such a way that it looked like facial hair. And I remember, uh, you know, doing it and then looking in the mirror and thinking, oh my goodness, that looks like real hair. That's so cool. And then putting on the, the tooth blackener to make my tooth look like it was gone. And I just remember being so blown away by the way that the makeup had transformed things and how I suddenly looked like a pirate. Um, it was, yeah, I, I, like to this day, I still remember that delight that I had uh, regarding that. So definitely the pirate costume for me. Uh, thank you all for your answers on that bonus topic. And you listening out there, if you'd like to get ad-free episodes with an extra overtime topic every week, you can become a member of Clockwise. All you do is go to relay.fm slash clockwise and sign up for just $5 a month or $50 a year, and you will help support the show. In this week's overtime topic, we discuss our collections of old devices or lack thereof. All right. With that, we have reached the end of this episode of Clockwise. All that's left is to thank our incredible guests, Shelley Brisbane. Thanks so much for being here. It was my pleasure. And Stephen Robles, thank you so much for joining us on Clockwise for the first time. Lots of fun. Thanks for having me. And Michael will be back next week. But until then, we remind everybody listening out there, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. <laughs>